This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, July 12th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, new report dives into housing crisis. G is for government previews Telluride Town Council. New hotel clears planning hurdle and a mountain weather forecast. Local government leaders are reacting to a new report looking at housing and services in mountain communities. KOTO's Matt Hoish has more. 20 to 40 percent. That's how much rents increased in the last year and a half in six Colorado mountain counties, according to a new study looking at impacts on housing and services during the pandemic. That's a pretty significant jump when we knew that even before covid Rents made up a very high portion of our locals' wages. That's Margaret Bowes, executive director of the Colorado Association of Ski Towns, which partnered with the Northwest Colorado Council of Governments on the recently published study called the Mountain Migration Report, which looks at trends in Eagle, Grand, Pitkin, Route, Summit, and San Miguel counties. Bose acknowledges, for the most part, the study confirmed and put numbers behind what people in the regions anecdotally knew. They've been busier since COVID, with more part-time homeowners and more visitors. And according to the study, a lot of the newcomers want to stay. So we, I think, can expect our communities to continue to feel busy and continue to experience some of the impacts that comes with that. Moreover, many of those newcomers, Bose explains, have higher incomes than longtime locals. So those newcomers and part-time residents will continue to be able to likely outbid our full-time residents when it comes to real estate properties and rentals. A lot of San Miguel County residents probably aren't too surprised by any of these findings. Same for local government leaders. I was not surprised at all. It really confirmed what I think we all know at a gut level. That's Telluride Town Council member Lars Carlson, who also served as a council liaison for the report, and San Miguel County Commissioner Lance Waring. So, what's the value of the study? Waring thinks it will increase the sense of urgency around adapting to these challenges. What we knew intuitively has suddenly been codified and put in a binder that we can look at and refer to, and that helps to light a fire. Carlson notes it also underlines housing is a challenge for communities across the state. I think it hurts us to think of ourselves as being special in that in that regard. I think it's like, hey, we're all in this together. What can we take from other communities that make sense to, to work with our community? When it comes to local solutions, Waring notes the County Planning Commission is considering ways to make zoning more housing friendly, and the county is discussing hiring a housing director. Carlson anticipates Telluride will step on the accelerator for several town-owned housing projects in the coming year. On the west end of the county, Norwood Mayor Kiefer Perino points to a partnership between the town, the county, and the Telluride Foundation to build 15 workforce housing units in the coming months. He also thinks there should be more development in the more sparsely populated parts of the county. We've got this open area out here, so why not utilize it? You know, and again, I don't want to, you know, take away from the originality of the area, but I think if we do it right, we can, you know, meet some needs and keep the originality of the Norwood West End area. Mountain Village Mayor Leila Benitez declined to comment on the Mountain Migration Report, saying the town needs more time to digest it. 
Mountain Village recently launched a deed restriction purchase program and is working on a village court apartments expansion, allowing more lock-off unit development and hiring a housing director. The Mountain Migration Report also offers a menu of next steps to mitigate housing challenges, including advocating for policy changes at the state and federal levels, as well as developing regional partnerships for greater efficiency. Here's Bose. There's a pretty growing acceptance that it's going to take some significant collaboration uh, among all sorts of different entities in a community. The report also highlights the importance of short-term rental regulation through measures such as taxation and public safety standards. And I think a tricky one, but an important one, is how to incentivize some of these short-term rentals transitioning back into the long-term rental housing pool. COVID has exacerbated what was already a housing crunch in mountain areas. And what's at stake, Bose says, is the soul of these communities. Do you have a community if families and police officers and teachers can no longer afford to live there? And does it threaten the very cool vibe that attracts folks to these communities in the first place? The full Mountain Migration Report is available at nwccog.org. Telluride's town council meeting on Tuesday will be chock full, from a state of the town address to housing, lodging taxes to area development. In this installment of G is for Government, Council Member Geneva Shawnette previews what to expect. Have a listen. Hey Geneva, thanks for joining me for another installment of G is for Government. Thanks for having me. Lots of stuff going on. There is a lot of stuff going on, and Telluride Town Council um, is no exception. You have a big agenda for Tuesday, um, including two work sessions in the morning. Can you just give a quick overview of what those two work sessions will be discussing? So the first work session is going to be a discussion, um, a work session regarding the Southwest Area Conceptual Plan. It's going to be uh, presented by Ron Quarles, the head of our planning department, and this is basically getting to be near the end um, of a long-term planning conceptual plan for what to do with the properties in the southwest area of the town that the town owns. So we're talking mostly about all of the um, circulation and traffic patterns that happen down Mahoney, up Pacific, up Davis, um, as well as uh, the larger uh, undeveloped parts of uh, land, parcels of land, uh, namely the Shandoka parking lot, lot B, the Carhenge parking lot, and Virginia Placer areas that have not been developed yet. And basically, what does the town foresee could be a roadmap for how to develop those properties in the future? That's a work session, but then council's going to be coming back to the issue a little bit later in the afternoon. Is that correct? Yes. So we'll be talking about it again in the morning. And then we will uh, be voting to adopt or not adopt the plan in the afternoon. Got it. Okay. There is a second work session following that one. Um, What's that one going to be looking at? So this is a discussion um, regarding a potential ballot issue to opt out of the county lodging tax and implement a town excise tax on uh, the same lodging activities that could potentially be used for more um, more things to spend on other than marketing. So 
This is something that I actually brought up and asked council if they'd be interested in discussing, and the majority of um, council members in the meeting at that time said that they would be interested in discussing it. Um, a little background is that any taxing issue in the state of Colorado, whether we're raising a tax, lowering a tax, or changing a tax in any way, has to go to the voters. So we won't decide anything tomorrow, but we can give direction to staff to either table this issue or write ballot language that we would then vote on at a later meeting. But essentially, right now, all of the lodging taxes that are collected on lodging activities within the town of Telluride are collected by the state and distributed through the county for um, for marketing. And this is different than the way things go in the Mountain Village. Mountain Village has their own tax on lodging, and they are free to sort of make these choices on how they want to spend that money on marketing as they wish. And uh, this could be a way that we could also sort of gain a little bit more control over that revenue that's coming in. Got it. And so, as you mentioned, even if through this work session, council says, yes, let's write some ballot language on this. Council doesn't have the authority to say, yes or no, we're going to do this or not. It will have to go to the voters to make a decision as to whether or not they want this to be implemented. That's exactly right. So if we have we have the work session tomorrow, and if a majority of council does want to put this sort of ballot question to the voters, then... Um, our town attorney will draft um, that ballot language and bring it back to us at a following meeting, and then we will vote at that meeting to officially put it on the ballot or not, and then it will be fully in the hands of the voters. There's nothing else that town council can do, and the people of the community will decide what they whether they want to go for this uh, kind of option or not. So that's the morning, and then there's also a number of things um, going on in the afternoon that folks might be interested in, including a State of the Town address that Mayor Young will be presenting. I did want to ask you as well about a consideration of a local disaster emergency. What is that talking about? So we have seen a couple other towns um, around Colorado passing resolutions, making a declaration of a state of emergency because of the housing crisis. And I think, you know, not a ton of us really know what that sort of a declaration would mean, whether it would make taking actions on certain items easier or or make us more eligible for um, any sort of grant funding from the state. So I think we'll just be hearing, I think we wanted to discuss the issue. Um, we had our town staff prepare uh, some language for that. Um, but, you know, we're, I'm looking forward to hearing more from staff on, on what taking that step would actually mean. So tune in to that and uh, we will all learn together. Perfect. Well, Geneva, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to chat with me today. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. A large-scale hotel is one step closer to appearing on Main Street. On Monday, Telluride Town Council, sitting as the Historic and Architectural Review Commission, held a call-up to discuss a proposal for the Telluride Hotel and Residencies. The hotel in question sits next to the post office on the corner of Main Street and Willow. The project includes a 50-room hotel, a restaurant, on-site garage parking, eight free market condominiums, five on-site affordable housing units, and several other amenities such as retail space, event space, 
a pool, a spa, and rooftop bar. That's Jonna Wenzel, Historic Preservation Director for the town of Telluride, presenting before town council. Earlier this year, the Hark Board approved the proposal for the development, but with several conditions. The applicant must provide a planting and landscaping schedule, small changes to windows, doors, and decks, and one which is the reason for the call-up in the first place, setbacks on the third story. Under Telluride's Main Street Commercial Design Guidelines, third stories must be set back from the edge of the building. The guidelines, unfortunately, do not prescribe specific setback requirements, but they do encourage that third stories be substantially set back from the sidewalk's edge so that the building appears to be two stories as seen from across the street and that it should appear as an addition to the rear of the structure. The project in question has two setbacks, one facing Maine, the other Willow. In Hark's final approval of the design, it stipulated the developers must increase the Main Street setback from roughly 5 feet to roughly 11 feet, similar to the one already proposed on the Willow Street side. Through the call-up, developers countered, suggesting both setbacks are evened out at about 8.5 feet on each side. The question is, are the proposed setbacks at 8 foot 6 inches a substantial enough setback to create the appearance that the building is two stories? And do the setbacks create the appearance that the third story is an addition rather than just a continuation of this three-story facade? The discussion of the setback is not the largest topic when it comes to the development. The full project will span 10 lots, but the conversation does take over two hours. Andy McRae is the architect on the project. He says while the development is not in the historic landmark district, developers did take those guidelines into consideration and hopes the building will have a positive impact on the community. We hope that this hotel will become something of a community living room. Um, We hope that it makes uh, a quality contribution to the streetscape of Telluride. And moreover, from an architectural standpoint, we hope that it will stand the test of time and that it will continue to make a positive contribution a century from now. He adds increasing the setback isn't as easy as shifting the rest of the floor further back. There are a number of issues with that. Um, First of all, we would want to shift the pool south as well, but it's sitting in a well, if you will, Uh, uh, between hotel rooms and other functions on the floor below. So we don't really have the freedom to move that pool. Um, Secondly, it would result in relocation of mechanical systems and chases that run throughout the building. But most important, shifting this and keeping the hotel rooms the same size would require the relocation of an elevator core, a stair core, and additionally a residential elevator uh, that's connected to that. During public comment, feelings were mixed. Sherry Harvey is on the Hark board and disagrees with the proposed setbacks. I don't understand their reasoning that they just can't fit this reduction with this huge floor plan. In our mind as the board, it seemed to be such a small amount of square footage on their part that could be reconfigured out of other things, but yet such a big impact for what you're going to see on Main Street. But Rosie Cusack thinks the development is worth it. We need a hotel in this community. We need those five affordable housing units. I think we need to help this developer, not fight against him. Town Council was equally split. Councilmember Tom Watkinson supports the proposed setbacks. I feel that the 
setbacks have come back. They've come back with our sufficient. And, you know, it does appear to be, you know, as it states to be sort of a, a separate addition to the building. I'm not willing to lose this project. Councilmember Todd Brown adds the guidelines are just that. When we look at the guidelines and recognize that they are guidelines and not strict rules, and it's the mission of HARC and us today sitting as HARC to maintain the architectural integrity of the entire town, despite the fact that this sits across the street from the historic landmark district, I think this fits. It's not perfect. Nothing is ever perfect, but uh, I think they've done the job. Council member Geneva Shawnette says she can see both sides of the argument, but she wants to stand by the board. I just don't think that it's impossible to fit within, to amend the design, to work within what Hark decided. So I want to back Hark up on this one, and that doesn't mean it was it's an easy decision for me. And Mayor Delaney Young doesn't like the apparent default of the third story. She notes the design guidelines don't guarantee that third level in the first place. It seems to me that there already was a great compromise given by allowing the entire building to basically have a third story, setbacks or not. Council voted 4-2 to two to approve the proposed design, with Mayor Delaney Young and Councilmember Geneva Shawnette voting against. Councilmember Jesse Ray Arguez was not in attendance of the meeting. The next step for the project is to move through the building permitting phase. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will begin mine-tailing removal and cleanup on the valley floor next week. The 34-acre plot sits on the south side of the valley floor next to the Boomerang Bridge. In a news release, the EPA's Betsy Smittinger says the removal of the tailings is important to, quote, protect the community from lead and arsenic, improve aquatic habitat, and enhance a highly valued and visited natural area. The work will include removal and disposal of tailings and soil found in and near the bank of the San Miguel River, as well as river restoration. The EPA says it will clear trees and vegetation as necessary. During the project, the EPA will temporarily redirect trails around the area. Tailings will be removed to a new Mont Idorado property. The EPA says all tailings will be hauled in a manner that does not spread contamination. The tailings mitigation project will begin on July 19th and likely extend into the fall. The EPA notes river restoration work may continue into 2022. Housing. The word itself will likely bring up a strong reaction to those in the Telluride region, and this week the Telluride Foundation will be providing the community with an update on its new housing initiative, Rural Homes for Sale for Locals. The initiative is a pilot program to build workforce housing in Colorado. The foundation is partnering with governments to donate land and using low-cost construction on prefabricated home designs with the goal of providing housing for the local workforce and community. The foundation notes it hopes to refine the model and create a toolkit so similar initiatives can take place across the state. 
The Rural Homes for Locals for Sale webinar will take place Tuesday, July 13th at 11 a.m. via Zoom. Those traveling between Ure and Silverton may face traffic delays this week. The San Miguel Power Association will be conducting a power line reconstruction project on Highway 550 over Red Mountain Pass. The construction will take place on Tuesday, July 13th and Wednesday, July 14th, with work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Motorists may encounter 15-minute delays in traffic. The Colorado River is tapped out. It supplies 40 million people in the southwest, but a prolonged warming and drying trend has left the nation's two largest reservoirs at record lows. For the first time, a shortage will be declared by the federal government. Luke Runyon from KUNC traveled the 1,400 miles of the river to get a sense of how those who rely on it are coping. The river starts on Colorado's western slope, where father and son Wayne and Brackett Pollard run cattle. Up on a sagebrush-covered hillside, we look down into the Rifle Valley, where the men use the river's water to grow hay. Typically, this would be high water, and it hasn't really come up at all. They list off all the superlatives that come with life in the West this year. Driest, hottest, lowest, worst. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. Our springs are starting to dry up up on the mountain and everywhere. This dry spell comes with the usual lack of rain and snow and the relentless sun. And now a hot wind has arrived. Brackett says it's like someone is pointing a giant hairdryer at his pastures. It's just like sucking the moisture out even more so. Nearly all of the upper Colorado River Basin is experiencing severe drought or worse. Tributaries are running low and hot, and without enough feed, the region's ranchers are looking to sell. The Pollards plan to offload about half of their cows over the next few months. When you're looking at a, a serious loss of equity in, in really just rural America, in the rural West. So the first couple miles is going to be really choppy. About 250 miles downstream, the river becomes a massive reservoir, Lake Powell, where Sherry Fascinelli and husband Randy Redford are vacationing. The reservoir fills Glen Canyon, a maze of red rock on the Colorado Plateau. The lake is headed toward its lowest point since it was built. Fascinelli veers their speedboat into a side canyon. You know, places where you've boated for 20 years and gone flying over, all of a sudden now there's big islands and rocks. A stark white bathtub ring on the brick-colored walls looms over us. The record low level means its dam is generating less hydroelectric power, and it makes for a hair-raising boat ride. Plus, when the canyons get narrower, then you've got to worry about other traffic more. So it's a little more nerve-wracking. <laughs> An estimated four and a half million people visited in 2019, spending more than $420 million. But this year, several paved boat ramps no longer reach the water. So you've got the same number of visitors using fewer launch ramps. So you're gonna have longer lines, shorter tempers. Further downstream, in a Las Vegas-gated community, the Colorado River's water spurts out of a sprinkler and onto manicured grass, catching the eye of Devin Choltko, water waste investigator. And there's too much water leaving the property at the moment. 
So we're gonna get out of the car, throw our lights on, and uh, document the spray and flow violation is what we call it. Chultko works for the Las Vegas Valley Water District. She pulls out her phone to take a video of the offending sprinklers. So, Water Waste Investigator 9393, it is Tuesday, June 15th at 8.07. Grass like this recently got a death sentence. This year, Nevada declared so-called non-functional turf illegal, lawns that are only ornamental. Chultco's agency projects that nearly 4,000 acres of turf in the Las Vegas Valley will be ripped out over the next five years. Las Vegas already restricts lawns in new developments and pays homeowners to replace their yards. So unfortunately, we, do, we are in a desert and grass is one of those high water use, users. But the Las Vegas area has kept growing during the drought, adding 315,000 people in the last decade alone. As the river keeps shrinking, demands have to shrink too. Otherwise, the whole system gets drained. Conserving now means less pain down the line, Chultko says. Um, so all of these restrictions have allowed us as a community to kind of keep populating. I mean, the, the population isn't going anywhere, you know, so we have to kind of accommodate to that. The coming shortage declaration means another round of steep cuts to water supplies, falling the hardest on Arizona farmers. If reservoirs keep dropping, further reductions are coming to Nevada, California, and Mexico. This is, used to be the riverbed. Near the river's end, Jordan Joaquin, president of the Fort Yuma Quichan Indian tribe, stands on its banks, looking out on what used to be the start of the river's expansive delta, now just a narrow channel. So where are we standing today? If this was to be watered, this would be all covered with shrubbery, willows, cottonwood as well. So, Not far upstream, water is drawn off to serve customers in Los Angeles and Phoenix and to irrigate crops, including local ones, says tribal council member Charles Escalani. So that's why I always tease everybody when they're from the, uh, back east. I'm like, when you're eating a salad in December, thank us, because that's where it's coming from. The tribe's share of the Colorado is part of a century-long list of legal agreements among those who use it. But Joaquin says in the past, tribes were largely excluded. When tribes were consulted, if that's what they call it, it's at the very end. Decisions were already made. The entire watershed is gearing up for a new round of policy negotiations. Perennial questions are being made more urgent. Can the watershed adapt to climate change? How will everyone get by with less? And Joaquin says, how can river management be made more inclusive? Water is very important to us. You know, water is sacred to us. So the most meaningful thing is to be part of the negotiation at the table, not the back table, not the side table, but at the table of discussion. Because the answers to those questions will shape life in the West for everyone who depends on the Colorado River for decades to come. I'm Luke Runyon. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with areas of smoke. It should be partly cloudy with a low around 50 degrees. Tuesday, showers and thunderstorms are possible with a chance of smoke and a high in the mid-70s. Tuesday night calls for showers and thunderstorms with a low around 50. Wednesday, expect showers and thunderstorms with a high around 70 degrees during the day and a low in the mid-50s at night. Winds could gust as high as 20 miles per hour. This has been the news for Monday, July 12th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206.